The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. This is another one I'm, I'm supposed to teach out in California, and somehow I'm supposed to cram all this into one lesson. I'm not going to even try to do that for our Sunday school. This is kind of a long chapter, but I'll try to cover this in two sessions, so I hope to get partway through it today, and then, God willing, we'll pick it up the next time I teach in a few weeks. So, first of all, Let's see if this thing's going to work today. Well, we're not working. I don't know if the battery's dead or what's going on, but it's not working. Ah! That was sort of subtle the way it did that, huh? See, there we go. Okay, that's, that's good. That's really ugly. I tried something different because our camera is so, so bad to see if it would be clearer. But there's help on the way. Uh, we are getting a new camera, praise the Lord, and... Soon this will be corrected, but for now we still have to put up with the, the weirdness. Hope you can see it. All right. Oh, it does? The point, this works better if you have me that? Okay, thank you. Okay, so paragraph one, the focus of paragraph one is on the, uh, is on the fact that believers may have assurance in this life and really should have. Let me read that first paragraph. Although temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them a shame. So let me first say something about the historical background. As with many of these chapters, they're, uh, they're formulating these doctrines in part in answer to false doctrines that had inflicted the church from time to time. And, and that's true with this one. Uh, there have been those who have taught and argued that a full assurance of salvation is not possible in this life. For example, the Roman Catholic Council of Trent declared that the assurance of being in a state of grace and final salvation is impossible, except by special revelation to select saints. And that special revelation is something that's very rare. It's not to be enjoyed by the ordinary Christian. In fact, Rome not only views assurance as ordinarily impossible or extremely rare, it also regards it as, in most cases, undesirable and dangerous Uh, The thought is that if a person is sure that he has eternal life, that he's saved now and will be saved in the end, if he's sure of that, it will lead to presumption and to careless living. And this is one of the ways that they keep their their adherents uh, in bondage to the the priests and to confession and penance and all of these kinds of things. And it's this this state of suspense that the, uh, the, the faithful, as it were, are remaining in with regard to the assurance of their salvation. Now, likewise, Arminianism, you think back to the last chapter uh, the, uh, on perseverance of the saints, uh, well, the doctrine that saints may not persevere, that they may lose their salvation somewhere down the road, certainly that Arminian doctrine, is, it, it denies uh, that, uh, the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. And so according to that perspective, a man may be saved today and lost tomorrow as well. So, in opposition to these denials of assurance, this first paragraph argues for the possibility of enjoying the full assurance of salvation 
in this life. And the paragraph contains two parts, a concession and an assertion. So first of all, a concession. Although temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God, state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. That's a concession that they're making here. And though the main concern of the paragraph is uh, to defend and to argue for the uh, fact that believers can have full assurance of salvation, they begin by conceding this fact that there is also the danger of false assurance. Speaks of temporary believers and other unregenerate men. The, the temporary believers are included, you see, in the category of those who are not regenerate. They're not really born of the Spirit. And as you probably know, the New Testament in a number of places speaks of a kind of faith that men may have that is not saving faith. For example, we saw this and we we're going through the uh, Gospel of Luke in the parable of the soil. You remember the one soil that is described that, that believes for a while, it springs up quickly, and yet it doesn't bring forth fruit. When, when trials and the cares of the world and persecutions come, it, it never brings forth saving fruit. So there is a kind of spurious faith or false faith there that's not a saving faith. There's the example of Simon the sorcerer. You may remember in Acts chapter 8, who the Bible says he believed and he was baptized, but we learned later that what was actually motivating him, he was looking for power. He, was, he wanted to have the power that the, the apostles did to be able to uh, lay hands on people and they would receive the, the Holy Spirit and so forth. That was actually the... Uh, the uh, the aim of his so-called faith. It wasn't really believing in Jesus to save him from his sins, but it was a false faith. Also, some of the crowds who followed Christ are described as believing in him in some sense, but at the same time, they turned away from him when confronted with the true nature of the salvation he came to give. They were looking to Christ for bread or for temporal blessings or miracles, not for salvation from sin that Christ came to accomplish and provide for sinners. And therefore, their faith was a false, temporary faith. Now, a false faith or false assurance may not always be temporary. In addition to temporary believers, the confession also refers to, quote, other unregenerate men who may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God in state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. Those who have a false assurance are not always temporary professors of faith. As one uh, R.C. Sproul argues, some believe in justification by death. Sometimes it's a, a, you know, a wrong doctrine of salvation. In other words, they believe everybody that dies is going to heaven, and so they have an assurance. Or others believe in some form of justification by works. If I try to do, be a good person, or if I'm religious and I do religious things, I'll be assured, but uh, I'll be saved, but... Any assurance that's built on such ideas is a false assurance. There are those who may continue with a false assurance even till the day of judgment. It's a scary prospect, but Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty-two to 23 that many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So this is the concession that this first paragraph makes. There can be a false assurance. But then we have the assertion, an assertion. After making this con concession, 
We have the main assertion of the first paragraph. Yet, such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. And you'll notice here it speaks of the present and the eternal scope of this assurance. May in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace. And not only may they be assured that they are presently in the state of grace, but it says, and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. They can be assured that they will continue to remain in the state of grace and, and that they will be fully and finally saved in the end. Now, what scriptural evidence can be given to support this assertion of the confession? Well, first of all, there are many examples in the Bible of persons who possessed this assurance of salvation. We could look at the Old Testament. We could look at numbers of people in the Old Testament, especially if you read the Psalms. Uh, we see often David having a full assurance of faith. And uh, there are times when that assurance was shaken, especially when he backslid and sinned terribly against Bathsheba. And yet he could say later in, in Psalm 32.1, Speaking of himself, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He knew his sins were forgiven and covered. He had assurance. The Apostle Paul, when we read the New Testament, we can multiply uh, statements by the Apostle Paul where he speaks of his assurance of salvation. But not only Paul, consider what he wrote to the Roman Christians, not merely with reference to himself, but with reference to them as well. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Romans 8.31 and following, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? These are all strong assertions of assurance. John speaks of this often in his first epistle. He had assurance, and he assumes that many of his readers have it or should have it. 1 John 2, 3, now by this we know that we know him. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death into life. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And, and that assurance is not merely confined to the days of the apostles. There have been many throughout the history of the church who have given every evidence of being true Christians and have also known this same assurance and do so uh, right down to our own day. So that's the first evidence of it, of the fact that uh, believers may have full assurance. The second is that we are actually exhorted in the New Testament and urged and commanded to know this assurance. We could even say that that's what all the, almost all the epistles are ultimately about, is Paul helping God's people have a, have a confident, assured faith in, in the things that he writes. And we are exhorted, commanded to know this assurance if we don't have it, and to preserve it if we do. I just put a couple of texts there, for example, Hebrews six eleven, and we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end. Second Peter 1, 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. And uh, the verb there, to make sure, is it's the infinitive. It's in the middle voice. So what does that mean? Well, it means the idea is to make sure to yourself. Make this sure to yourself. 
assurance he's talking about. Think again of the first epistle of John. John actually tells us that one of the reasons that he wrote that epistle was to help believers have assurance. 1 John 5, 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. One of the purposes for which John wrote his epistle is that those who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that they have eternal life. He writes to promote and to confirm the believer's assurance of salvation. The assumption, therefore, is a true believer can and should have assurance. And now we move to paragraph two. The focus of paragraph two are the, we could call the three roots of assurance or the threefold cause or three causes of assurance. And uh, there are three elements or sources of assurance by which assurance is, is produced in the hearts of God's people. And I do think it's helpful to think of these as three roots that feed the flower of assurance. And someone else has illustrated it. If you think about a flower, uh, these are the three roots that feed that flower of assurance. And what are they? Well, let me, let me point out, let me read the, the paragraph first and see if you can pick out what the three roots are, and then I'll open them up. It says, it says the certainty, this certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion. In other words, not just a hope so, maybe so kind of thing, grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance. That means a, an assurance that will not deceive us. Founded, one, on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel, Two, and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit unto which the promises are made. Three, and on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, and as a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and happy. <clears throat> so, the first of these three roots is what I'm, I'm calling the objective foundation of assurance. Objective is, is, think, is speaking of something that's outside of you. It's not something you feel or do. It's something that's completely outside of you. And foundation, I use that word to underscore this because this is really the primary uh, uh, source of assurance, which the others are built. So the first root of assurance, according to the confession, is something totally outside of ourselves, the confession says that this infallible assurance of faith is founded, first of all, on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. Now, interestingly, when you read the Westminster Confession of Faith on this chapter, it refers to this first root as the divine truth of the promises of salvation. That's, that's how they describe this first root. But that's really just a different way of saying much the same thing. The promises of salvation have reference to the atoning blood and righteousness of Christ revealed to us and offered to us, he offered to us, uh, him offered to us in the gospel. And in a real sense, the blood and righteousness of Christ and their implications for sinners form the content of the gospel promises of salvation. So really they're, they're saying the same thing. The emphasis in both confessions is on the fact that the first root of assurance is totally outside of us in the realities and in the promises of the gospel, namely Christ and his redeeming accomplishment for sinners freely extended to us in the gospel and the promises of salvation to all who look to him and his work alone for acceptance with God. 
Promises like, he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever, whosoever believes on him shall have eternal life. Now, this is the taproot of assurance, the primary source, the objective foundation of assurance in the heart of the believer. Now, there are many texts we could look at, but with the limitations of time, I'll just mention one, I think, that sufficiently illustrates and demonstrates this. And this is Romans 8, 33 to 34. We read it a moment ago. The Apostle Paul says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? That's a strong assertion of assurance, right? That's, a, that's what's called a rhetorical question. He's saying the answer to the question is assumed. No one. There's no one who can condemn us justly. And why is that? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So this is a defiant expression of assurance of salvation, and it actually comes as part of a series of confident challenges. This one is connected both to the last words of verse 33 and the last part of verse 34. Paul says in verse 33b, it is God who justifies. It is God who declares the believing sinner righteous in his sight. Who is he who condemns? And then Paul goes on further to describe the basis of this confidence as he mentions four things here about the work of Christ. And you'll notice that they all have to do with not, not with Christ's work in us, but with Christ's work for us. It is Christ who died, making a full atonement for our sin. Furthermore, it is also Christ who is risen, confirming that his sacrifice was accepted by God and sufficient. It is Christ who is even at the right hand of God, uh, the supreme place of acceptance and authority, having successfully finished the work the Father gave him to do. And it is Christ who also makes intercession for us, as we saw last time in the chapter on perseverance, it's by his intercession that he secures the application of everything that he has accomplished for us to us throughout our life experience, securing that we will be saved all the way to the end and will never be lost. So, so this assurance that the apostle expresses and is arguing here belongs to every Christian is derived from gospel facts and realities that are totally outside of us. He says nothing about himself. He says nothing about who he is or what he has done or hasn't done. He says nothing about what he feels or doesn't feel. He looks away from and out of himself to Christ and his work for us, and there he rests his case. Who is he who condemns? This is the primary source, taproot of assurance. I let all my fears and doubts and uncertainties drive me afresh, constantly, repeatedly to Christ and his work for us and the promises of the gospel as my sure and only trust. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Spurgeon gives a, a very helpful uh, illustration here. He says, A great monarch was accustomed on certain set occasions to entertain all the beggars of the city. Around him were placed his courtiers, all clothed in rich apparel. 
The beggars sat at the same table in their rags of poverty. Now it came to pass that on a certain day, one of the courtiers had spoiled his silken apparel so that he dared not put it on. And he felt, I cannot go to the king's feast today for my robe is foul. He sat weeping till the thought struck him. Tomorrow when the king holds his feast, some will come as courtiers, happily decked in their beautiful array. But others will come and be made quite as welcome who will be dressed in rags. Well, well, said he, so long as I may see the king's face and sit at the royal table, I will enter among the beggars. So without mourning, because he lost his silken habit or costume, he put on the rags of a beggar and he saw the king's face as well as if he had worn his scarlet and fine linen. Spurgeon then goes on to make this application. My soul has done this full many a time when her evidences of salvation have been dim. And I bid you do the same when you are in like case. If you cannot come to Jesus as a saint, come as a sinner. Only do come with simple faith to him and you will receive joy and peace. You see, the point is no matter how low I may be as a Christian, no matter how dull and dry and dark I may sometimes feel in my soul, Christ is still the same. He's always the same. He and all of the benefits of that saving work that he has accomplished for sinners are still as free to me now, just as I am, as he always has been to me from the very beginning when I first came to him as a lost sinner. Therefore, if my evidences of salvation seem so dim that I wonder if I even have any, and I feel that I can't come to Jesus with any confidence that a true work of grace has been worked in my soul, I can still come as a sinner and nothing but a sinner looking out of myself to him and his work alone. And his promise will always be true. Him who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And this gives assurance. This is the objective foundation of assurance. You follow me? All right. Secondly, we have the sub, what I'm calling the subjective supports of assurance. There, there, there are subjective elements of our experience that come along to help to bolster and to encourage and support our assurance of salvation. The confession goes on to mention a second root. It says that this assurance is founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel and also upon the inward evidences of those graces of the spirit into which the promises are made. Those four points weren't supposed to come out up yet. Did I go too fast? Okay, well, anyway... Now, the subjective supports of assurance are what's sometimes called the evidences of Christ's work in us now, okay? Or what are sometimes called the evidences of grace or the marks of um, the new birth. You see, the salvation that Christ gives to sinners includes two major and inseparable components. It includes a change of status and standing before God, which is solely based upon Christ and his work. And it includes a change of heart, a change of nature, which is the result of Christ's work in us. If Christ's work for us, but also Christ's work in us. And both a change of status and a change of nature will always come together. Our, now, it's important that we're clear, as we've underscored a number of times, that our acceptance with God, our status before God as his forgiven, justified children is not based on the change of nature. It's not based on anything that we do. 
It's based on what Christ has done. But at the same time, it's never separate from a change of nature because where there is faith in Christ alone for acceptance with God, there has also occurred the new birth. Of course, that's the, the, the primary mark of, of the new birth is faith in Christ. And where there is justification, there is ongoing sanctification that follows. So now, uh, there are various marks then that the Bible lays out for us where we can, we, can, we, can, we can look at these and see these things in ourselves as Christians that help to encourage our assurance. But one of the most concentrated and helpful references to this source of assurance is found in the epistle that I referenced a bit earlier, the first epistle of John. You remember I, I read 1 John 5.13. These things, and he's not just talking about that verse, He's talking about that epistle, the things he's written. I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The things he's written in that that epistle have, as one of their major purposes, helping those who believe in Christ to have assurance, right? Well, one of the things John does in that letter is he sets forth various marks of grace or evidences of the new birth by which we can test ourselves. For example, four things John mentions and the cat's out of the bag because you see them already. But anyway, if you can actually read that. The first thing is I've, I've said it this way, trying to summarize what John says in chapter 1, verse 6 to chapter 2, verse 2, that the true children of God see and feel that they are sinners, in need of Christ, and they seek to deal honestly with God about their sins. You see, by nature, we walk in darkness and falsehood before God. You may want to have your Bible open to 1 John, by the way, as we look at these. We, t- we justify ourselves, and we seek to keep up a good opinion of ourselves, which includes being, uh, but those who have come to know and to trust Jesus Christ, they walk in the light of truth, which includes being honest and truthful before God about their sins. Look at 1 John, picking up with verse 6, reading down to chapter 2, verse 2. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from sin. And walking in the light, walking in the light of truth. Um. We're not, we're, not, we're not pretending. We're not trying to justify ourselves as being something that we are not. We are walking in the light, and as we do so, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, do you see the contrast that's being made in that passage? There are those who walk in darkness, and there are those who walk in the light. One of the ways those who walk in the light... True Christians are known is that they do not characteristically try to minimize the reality of their sinfulness. They do not try to justify themselves before God. They seek to deal honestly and truthfully with God about their sins. In other words, they know that they are sinners. 
and they confess that they are sinners, constantly in need of Christ as their advocate and of his blood to cleanse them. This is one of the marks of those who are in union with Christ, those who have been born again, who have faith in Christ. Secondly, a person who has been born again is marked by repentance from sin. He's looking to Christ alone for forgiveness and acceptance with God, but he's also endeavoring by God's grace to turn from and to forsake his sins as he's made aware of them. If you look at 1 John 3 verse 9, John writes there, whoever is born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. And he he makes this argument a number of times as one of the ways we know that we belong to him. Now, John doesn't mean here that those who are born again are sinless in the absolute sense that that might appear to us when we first read it. Remember, this is the same John who just said over in chapter 1, If we say that we have no sin, indwelling sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And if we say that we have not sinned, actual sins, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the same John who speaks to Christians about confessing their remaining sins as we become aware of them and of the Lord Jesus being the Christian's advocate before the Father When we do sin, when the Christian sins. So John is clearly not speaking of sinlessness here, but he is underscoring. He he tends to do this in his letter letter to underscore these things. It's a very stark contrast, and he's underscoring a fundamental difference between the regenerate man and the unregenerate man. The regenerate man, the man born of the Spirit, no longer lives and walks in the ways of sin as a chosen lifestyle. The verb is in the present tense. He is not practicing sin. And I think more specifically, in the context of this letter, it may be that John especially has in mind the sin of apostasy because he's been warning about that in the letter. He speaks of those who were of us, but they were not really of us, or they would have remained among us, but now they have gone out from us that it might be proven that they were not really of us. The believer never apostatizes from the faith and returns to a life of unbelief and impenitence. He has a repentant heart and lifestyle. The third infallible evidence of salvation is the desire and endeavor to obey God's commandments. Not only turning from the pursuit of sin, but the positive side of turning to the pursuit of obedience. 1 John 2, 3. By this we know, if you look at chapter 2, verse 3, by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. Now, the person who is born of of God is a person who would never dare, does not dare to trust in his own works or efforts to obey as the ground of his salvation and acceptance with God. He trusts in Christ and his work alone and his free promise. But at the same time, because of the work of God's grace in his heart, the work of the Spirit in his heart, He endeavors to live according to God's will. He wants to do the things that please God, though he often fails, and he's grieved about his many failures because his heart's desire and serious endeavor is to obey his heavenly Father in everything without exception. And that's why he also experiences godly sorrow and grief because he never completely lives up to that desire that he has, though he endeavors to do so. Fourthly, another mark. John tells us that those who belong to Christ 
have a practical affection and attachment to God's people. Look at 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. We know. We have assurance that we have passed from death into life. And here's one of the ways that our assurance is encouraged and strengthened and that we know this is because we love the brethren. A person born of the Spirit has a special love and attraction to those, all those who evidence, evidence themselves to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. He loves the brethren because they are God's people and because of what he sees of the grace of God in them. These are the people he wants to be a part of and to share his life with. So these are four simple marks or evidences of grace. And as we see them in our lives, in any real degree in our lives, they serve as supports to the believer's assurance that we belong to him, that we know that we have passed from death unto life. And this brings us now to a third root that feeds the flower of assurance, what I'm calling the divine agent of assurance. So you have the objective foundation of assurance, the subjective supports of assurance, and now the divine agent of assurance. The confession next mentions the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. And this brings us back to Romans 8. Paul writes in Romans 8, 15 to 16, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's the key passage with reference to this third root of assurance. There's also Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And we could add 1 Corinthians 2, 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So the New Testament does indeed teach that one of the sources of assurance is the spirit bearing witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. There's no doubt about that, that the New Testament teaches uh, the ministry of the Spirit when it comes to producing assurance in the hearts of God's people. But now the question is, what exactly is the witness of the Spirit? And then what's its relationship to these other two sources of assurance? Well, there are two major errors. And again, they're all coming up at the same time. But uh, two major errors... Uh, we so I kind of want to have this kind of surprise effect. You know, you get one and then you have the other, but it's not working that way. Uh, two major errors. One is some have argued that the witness of the Spirit is simply the witness given by the marks of the new birth in God's people. Now, the, the, you see, that view just simply kind of joins together two of the three roots of assurance already mentioned in the confession and makes them into one. In other words, that the marks of the new birth, which we just went over, are the witness of the Holy Spirit. But what we have in verse 16 of Romans 8, I'm convinced is something in addition to that, because he's been describing various marks of the Spirit's presence in the believer's life, being led by the Spirit, mortifying sin, and even the crying Abba Father, uh, this inclination of heart that we have now to, to cry to God about our needs and our concerns as a child would to a father. Now, all of those things are what we may call marks of grace, marks of God's work in our life. 
But then he goes on in verse 16 to describe not what we do by the Spirit's power, which evidences his work in our lives, but what the Spirit himself does in addition to that. Notice the emphatic way that Paul puts this. We have the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father, talking about something we do that evidences the Spirit's work in our lives. We cry to him about our needs. In fact, the, the word cry there is a word that really is off, very often used in the New Testament of a cry of distress. There's numbers of instances where it's used that way. Crying out to our Father about the needs of our souls. But then he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits. Literally, it's very emphatic, literally, himself, the Spirit, bears witness is how it is in the text. He could have simply said the Spirit bears witness or the Spirit bears witness with our spirit, but that's not what he said. He deliberately put it this way. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits. It is the person of the Holy Spirit himself witnessing together with our spirits. You see, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not only instrumental in making us God's children by awakening in us faith in Christ, producing new life. There's also the Spirit's work of making us aware that we are God's children. This is the Spirit himself making us aware, causing us to know that we are the children of God. But there's a second way that this has been understood, which goes to the other extreme, and I think can be very, very dangerous, and it's even more dangerous. Uh, recognizing what has just been pointed out, that there have been some who have gone on to argue that this text is referring to some secret revelation of the Spirit to your heart. That in some kind of mysterious way, the Spirit inwardly speaks to a man by a kind of inward voice or impression and assures him that he is a child of God. And therefore, in fact, according to this view, the witness of the Spirit amounts to some kind of a new extra-biblical revelation of the Spirit. He inwardly tells you or inwardly reveals to you that you are a child of God, not in and by or together with the Word of God and the marks of grace, but in a kind of direct special communication. Well, I agree with Jonathan Edwards, who said that such a notion of the witness of the Spirit is dangerous and delusive and many mischiefs, as he puts it have arisen from it. And you can read the entire quote there. Our confession states that this assurance is without extraordinary revelation. What are they saying? In other words, this is not any direct revelation from the Spirit, detached from God's Word. Well, then, if the witness of the Spirit is not simply the witness to our sonship given by the marks of the new birth, and it's not some secret inward voice or special revelation in your heart, telling you that you are a Christian, what is it? Well, I agree with the greater part of credible and reformed exegetes and theologians that the witness, the Spirit witnesses with our spirit, not by some special revelation, but simply by enabling us to clearly discern from the Scriptures the evidence of His work in our hearts and by making the promises of the gospel precious to us and working faith in us to lay hold of them and to believe in them. You remember the other roots of assurance, the promises of the gospel, the objective realities of the gospel, what Christ has done, and the evidences of grace. These two roots nourish the flower of assurance. But what is it that makes all of that work, so to speak? 
to produce a felt sense of assurance in my heart. It's the Holy Spirit. He opens my heart to understand the message of the gospel and what Christ has done for sinners and what he has done for me through his work. He applies the promises to my soul by working faith in me to believe those promises. And he enables me to discern the work that he has done and is doing in my soul so that I can see these marks of grace in my life. And he so does this that I have a felt confidence of my adopted status as a child of God. Joel Beakey, at every point in, in true assurance, the activity of the Holy Spirit is essential. Without the Spirit's application, the promises of God will never affect us. And without the enlightening of the Spirit, self-examination tends to nothing but morbid introspection, bondage, and legalism. And we'll say more about this as we get on into the chapter and, and try to, to make this uh, as helpful as I can for you in, in, in clarifying. But the second paragraph then ends with a reference to the effects of assurance in the heart of a true believer. And contrary to the Roman Catholic fear that assurance produces presumption in careless living, the confession states that a biblical assurance as a fruit thereof keeps the heart both humble and holy. And the confession will have more to say on the fruits of assurance later, as we'll see when we talk about that in some detail. And then we'll get to paragraph three next time where it addresses the problem of the lack of assurance in a true believer, that a true believer can have assurance and should have assurance, but sometimes true believers lack assurance. What are some of the uh, reasons for that and causes for that? Uh, Paragraph 4 talks about the decrease of assurance and then the recovery of assurance that has been lost. So God willing, we'll, we'll talk about those things next time. Well, I'm sorry to take, take our time right up to the, to the bell, but uh, yeah, I'm supposed to cover this whole chapter in one lesson. And so it's, pray for me because for me, the challenge is to do it in a way that's actually going to be helpful to people and edifying to people and actually not just confuse them and, and do all of that in one lesson. So I, I asked them if I could, uh, if there was any wiggle room. And so what I'm going to try to do is go back through some of the other lessons, see if I can cut little parts out so that when I get to that lesson, I've still got two left over. So we'll see. All right. Well, God willing, we'll come back to that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word, its clarity. We, Lord, we thank you for our confession and for uh those who have labored over many, many years in the Christian church to, to wrestle with these truths and to hammer them out and to state them in succinct ways and clear ways. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ and the assurance that is given to us in him that you are reconciled to us. We thank you, Father, that uh, he becomes ours because you give him to us and we simply receive him by faith and all that is in him. We thank you that this gives us peace. It gives us assurance. We thank you also for the work of your spirit in our hearts and lives. Lord, we are not what we want to be or desire to be. We're often grieved about our lack of growth to the degree we wish it would happen. And yet, Father, we would be lying to our own consciences if we did not say that we are far from what we used to be. And we thank you, Father, as we see these things in our lives. Again, it it strengthens our assurance. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who comes through the ministry of the Word even today in various times and ways in our lives to 
to make all of this effectual to us, to encourage our hearts, and by these means to work in us and produce in us a full assurance of faith. Help us to grow in this assurance that we would be certain of our salvation, that we would not be uh, continually doubting it. Help us, Lord, to have a full confidence in you and in your promises and to rejoice in the work of your grace in our lives. And if there's anyone here today that does not know Christ, someone perhaps is thinking, I would give anything to be sure that I have eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to Jesus Christ, who said, whoever believes in me shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.